without sport, where do you think you would be? Dead. If if I if I never stumbled across uh, this, I've, my eyes would never have been open to it. I, I just think that um, yeah, I think I'd have ended up dead. Olympic Channel Podcast. That was armed robber, criminal turned professional athlete John McAvoy. I'm Ed Knowles, and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast. We find the very best people to talk about the biggest Olympic talking points every single week. If you love the Olympics, subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts. Olympic, Olympic Channel, Channel podcast. podcast. It just wasn't looking good. Armed robbery, a life of crime, a young life wasted in jail. Somehow, though, John McAvoy turned his life around from being in a high-security cell in Britain to breaking world records, rowing and becoming an Ironman triathlete. His life is a testament to the power of sport in changing lives. Ashley Tullock wanted to get to the bottom of his incredible story, so she gave him a call. Olympic Channel Podcast. Hi, John. How's it going? You're based in London at the moment, is that right? So I'm currently in southwest London, um, a place called Putney. So it's, it's just up the road from Chelsea. So it's like the mecca of, um, of British rowing. Of, of British club rowing, should I say? A lot of, uh, of our sort of Olympians normally row on the on the Thames, so it's called the Tideway. That's where like a lot of our like, Olympic champions have uh, originated from. Where where do we start? Because you went from being a teenager in jail to being a professional sponsored athlete. How did that happen? When when I was about five years old, um, my mum uh, told me one day when I come home from school when pupils were teasing me because I didn't have a dad and my mum explained to me that my dad had died and she said my dad died before I was born um she was eight months pregnant with me and she said that he had a massive heart attack and, and he went to heaven and, I, and the reason I'm telling you that explaining the story today is because even from a little kid I was inherently very very driven to be successful like when I got older I wanted to achieve a legacy. I wanted to achieve something in my life. I wanted to accomplish something. I didn't want to be normal. I didn't want to be average. I wanted to like, sort of leave my footprint on the earth. And what then sort of how it manifested itself out um, was when I was eight years old, um, a, a man coming into my life called um, Billy Tobin. And the first interaction I had with this man was he come round to our house where we lived in South East London. And he was very charismatic. He, he was dressed immaculately and I'd never seen him before and, and when I was growing up my mum never had a boyfriend like no men ever come into our home other than like my uncles and this stranger comes in and I remember he asked me to go and make him a hot drink a cup of tea and I made him a cup of tea and I was just in awe of him and when he left he come into the kitchen and I was in there and, and he gave me a 20 pound note and he was the first adult to ever give me paper money and I remember getting this paper money off him and I was, I was just like, wow, like, I, no one's ever given me paper money. Like, and it was, and to me, it was a fortune being eight years old, like 20 pounds. And he patted me on the head and he said, you're a good boy. And he left. And I asked my mum who he was. And my mum said, she explained to me that my sister 
that was her real dad. And my mum was married to him before she was married to my real dad that died. Um, and my mum got divorced from him. And he come back into my mum's life to a degree, not in a relationship, but because of my sister. And he was taking my sister out. And he never had a son. I never had a dad. And he took me under his wing. So the first step is this charismatic man. He was clearly very influential and had a big impact on you. But what was motivating you? Was it money? Money was everything. That was all it was. That was all what life was about, was money and value, or what things were worth, like the cars, the houses. Um, when I was growing up, Billy used to say to me when I was a little kid, 13, do you think you'll have more money than I had when I was 21 years old? And he always used to tell me that when he was 21, he was a multimillionaire. And, and I didn't really connect up the dots, so I really questioned where this money was coming from. And it transpires that Billy was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. Police tried to shoot him twice. Um, and when I saw him when I was eight years old, he'd just finished off serving a 16 year prison sentence for armed robbery. So then I obviously connected up the dots and I realized that when Billy was taking me out to these restaurants and he was taking me out socializing with, 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 with other men, um, they wasn't very academically clever but they were all incredibly wealthy. Um, and then again, you, you then start looking at the big houses, all the cars, the watches, the flagrant disregard for the law. Um, it was like, we protect ourselves and, and, the, and the system is the enemy. The government's the enemy, politicians are the enemy, they're, they're fair game. Um, and then obviously when you're hearing this as a little kid, I wasn't really getting in trouble with the police. So my, my authority become my school teachers. So when I started going to school, um, I had no respect for them. And, and again, I feel really sort of ashamed today the way I treat my teachers because to, my, to me, my teachers become the police. They become the system. And I was looking around at all these men that were multimillionaires and they were all very, what I thought at the time, were all successful, um, very streetwise and they had lots of money. And, and I thought, what, what, what's an A in English or maths going to get me in life? Yeah, that's not going to get me what I want. And what I wanted at that point in my life was to have a lot of money. I was 16 at this point, and, and I made that decision at quite a young age that I, I was going to um, follow the line of what my, my stepdad and, and all of his friends were doing. So at this point, you're 16 and deep in the criminal world. What, what sort of things were you doing? What sort of things did you start off doing? Um, I used to have a very good memory. Like I could always remember car registration plates and, and delivery routes. And I would case these security vans making deliveries to banks and stuff. And then I would relay that information back onto all the criminals. And then they would do what they did with it. They would go and commit the offences. And then, again, you start having all this praise lavished on you by grown men that are saying sort of how game you were, like how much bottle you had like at such a young age. And no one's sitting there and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. When you're, I suppose, when you haven't had a father in your life and you haven't had that role model and then suddenly you've got all these very powerful alpha males sort of lavishing praise on you, um, it does have a, like, I, I get that today with the work that I do today with kids. I understand the impact that can have on a young child's life, where if you've not got a positive role model in that life with encouragement and showing love, um, and someone negative comes in, even if you are the most driven, articulate person on the planet with your drive and ambition, how that can completely become corrupted and you can put that energy into something so toxic and negative. And, and, and that's what, that's sort of what happened to me as a child. Um, and, and that then sort of manifested itself out with me, um, 
getting arrested when I was um, 18 years old. And that was the first time I'd ever got arrested. First time I ever went to prison. But I ended up going to court. I got five years. They then transferred me out of that maximum security prison and they put me in a young offenders institution because they downgraded me because they couldn't then justify keeping me that high level security anymore. And then when I got moved to that prison, um, this is where like some really defining moments um, in my life and how I ended up changing began. Um, I got moved there to this, this young offenders institution. I was there one night. And then one day, the next day, sorry, the, um, my cell door opened and there was like five or six prison officers. And they asked me, um, they wanted all my clothes mm -hmm. off me because they said that I was a high escape risk. So they wanted to put me in this yellow suit. So the prison officers in the prison could identify me as a high escape risk. I refused because, again, I hated them. Um, but when you're in prison, you can't beat the system. Like that is a fact. And they put me in a segregation unit, which is like a nine by 11 foot cell. And you get like a bed a cardboard um, table and chair, there's a toilet and a sink, and that's it. And they put me in there, and I've got something called CC, which is confined to cell. So for seven days, you cannot leave that cell. And by this point, they had taken all my clothes, and I was in this yellow tracksuit. And when they, when they opened up the cell on the seventh day, they said, when you go on the wing, because when you're in prison, you have to work. You have to do something. You can't just lay in bed sleeping all day. And again, my hatred towards them was, I am not doing anything for whatever you tell me to do i'm going to do the opposite so after the seven days they opened up the door they said when you are on the wing your name's gone it's mcavoy and your prison number you're going to be a wing cleaner and and i laughed at them i said there is no way on earth i'm cleaning up your crap every day and they said are you refusing another lawful order and i said i am and then they put me in front of the governor and then the governor said to me You've refused another lawful order. You're going to get another seven days confined to cell. That would have been 14 days. Um, and when you go back up on the wing, you are going to have a job. And when he'd done that, he smiled at me. And then when I went back to that cell, um, the librarian used to come round once or twice a week with a little trolley. And she would come to all the segregation cell doors and you could take like one or two books off her trolley. And I read uh, Nelson Mandela's book. And there was a passage in it that when he was in prison in Robin Island, he, he used to smoke cigarettes. And he realized one day that, that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked tobacco as a punishment against him by being able to take it away from him. So he never smoked a cigarette ever again because he relinquished that power that they had. And I remember making that connection. I thought, actually, if these people think by putting me in this room, they're punishing me, I'll just take it away from them. So then when they open up the door, to put me back up on the wing after the seven days, I, re I refused to leave. And I remember they was in a little bit like, a little bit of shock, like why, why are you, what do you mean? Because this, this, is, this is our punishment against you. Why do you not want to leave? And, and I said, I'm standing there. And, and I know I literally, like literally spent the next 365 days in that room, uh, 24 hours a day. I didn't take exercise. Um, they come around Christmas day. They wanted me to talk to my mum on the phone and I refused that. I used to wash in the sink every day, but then I made a decision when I was in that cell, I would educate myself, I would read. Um, and this is where I started exercising because up to this point, I never exercised at all. And, and, I, and I didn't even know the names. I did, honestly, I didn't even know the names of the exercises that I was doing at the time. I used to do like squats, press ups, burpees, step ups, lunges. And I, would, I started off and I was, I, was, I was overweight, I was chubby.
really like I, I as I said I've never done I've never had an interest in, in sport or fitness whatsoever and I and I again started off and you do 10 squats and lactate acid would be building up I read that you've said before that you weren't a very sporty kid and as a, as a person, you didn't get picked in the football team and, and, and sort of things like that. So why did you suddenly start to do exercise? Were you bored? Because I, I started doing it originally was, yeah, it was probably a monotony of being bought, like locked up for 24 hours a, a day in the same room with, with nothing to do. Like All I had was like a radio um, and books. And, and again, you need to, you, that was my coping strategy. Like it I kind of stumbled into it like it was it was a way to to break up the monotony of being locked in a room for 24 hours a day and like I said at the beginning I was grossly underfit but when I got fit um, my body obviously transformed but the exercises got easier but then I was getting this massive and I didn't even know what the name was at the time I didn't know what they were but I felt amazing which was endorphins and I was I and it made me like it made me feel alive like when when you go to prison it's the nearest you can come to death without being dead i would say like you are literally entombed in in a cage like in in a, in a room but you're alive but you haven't got freedom you can't do what you want you are trapped so it's like being in a concrete coffin basically and and someone once said this to me an old guy when i was in prison you know when you walk through those gates you no longer live as a person you just exist and i remember when i was doing those circuits in that cell it made me feel alive. It literally did. Like I, I felt, I was sweating. I was hot. My heart rate was up. My body was morphing, and I felt strong. and And it just made me feel amazing. And like I said, I, I got to a point where I do a thousand of each exercise, and it would take me like an hour, hour and a half, two hours a day. Um, and then I would read my books for the rest of the day, and then I'd go to bed, and I'll repeat that cycle every single day. And after that 365 days, the prison officers basically open up the cell door and let me walk straight back out into the streets again. And and when I say I was a hundred times worse, I was a hundred times worse than the man they locked up. I was even more driven to make more money. Um, and in my mind, I thought for every year you've taken away of my life, I want a million pounds. That was how I equated that time spent in prison. I refused to let it be a waste of my life. I thought I've educated myself and I'm now going to come out and I'm now going to make that money for the years you've taken back off my life. I'm, I want that back. And I was out of prison for five days. I found tracking devices on my car. The police were following me around um, and I started playing games with them. I, I honestly, I was so, um, I was so, I was so driven to sort of embarrass the system um, and think and try to try to get one over on them and, and, show my sort of my 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 intelligence that they couldn't even catch me when they were watching me when I, when I got released and and I and I realized that um quite soon after a few months of doing this if if I continue to live in the United Kingdom I'm going back to prison because I knew they would do everything they could to put me back in prison that they, they were determined I was going back to prison so I made the decision when I was allowed to leave the United Kingdom, when my like sort of supervision had ended with my probation officer, I literally went out to the Netherlands. I was living in Holland for um, a few months and then I went down to Spain. And then when I went down there, it was just money, greed. Um, and then I, I started taking drugs. I started partying. Um, I was living again, I was living like a million miles an hour. That life is gonna end up with you being dead or spending your whole life in prison. That is it. 
And I think most people that engage in that life know that is the outcome. So what it is, is that high octane, live a million miles an hour and make the most of every single day and living in the moment because you know it's going to end. And then that's where the drugs and the drinking and, and the staying up, partying and the excessive, excessiveness with drip, with, with watches and cars and houses. and you, you become, it's intoxicating. You can become intoxicated by it. Yeah, the intoxication hadn't ended though, had it? You ended up in jail again uh, for a second time. So how did that happen? I was living in Spain. I come back to the United Kingdom and I met up with one of my stepdad's best friends and he asked me if I wanted to commit a robbery with him. And I always say it was the best decision I ever chose to make in my life. Because what I'd done that day when I agreed to do that with him was he had a hundred man police surveillance operation watching him. And the following day when we went to commit the, um, the offence, the police were waiting in ambush and we both got arrested. And then that was really, I, it, it, like when, when I when I put myself back in that situation where, like when I was having the car chase and being chased by him, uh, I knew what was coming. Like when I went to prison the first time, I um it was all unknown to me because I've never been arrested, I've never been in jail. But when you've been in there and you and I went through what I went through in the contacts of being in that segregation unit and everything like you, I had that experience. Um, I knew what was coming. And I remember I was fully prepared to sort of die having that car chase with the police. And presumably the state came down on you really hard this time. You know, repeat offender, you know, things are not looking good. No sign of remorse. The police can't have been very happy. They basically made an application to the Ministry of Justice that they believed that my escape risk was so high um, that my escape must be made impossible. So before when I was a young offender and I was kept with mouths because I was category A because they couldn't get me. So this time I was what they classed as a double category A prisoner. So it stepped up another level. So to give you an indication at that moment in time when I got arrested, there was 90,000 men in prison in the United Kingdom. And out of that 90,000, there was 28 that were deemed to be such a high escape risk that their escape had to be made impossible. I didn't really understand the gravity of, of, of what that really meant. Every time that I left prison, um, you, have to, you had to get transported with armed police and outriders, and that was to stop people from stopping the, the prison lorry and breaking you up because they believed your escape was that high that people would, would try to make a determined escape attempt to, to break you out. So to fit the criteria to be on that, for people that don't really understand about how the criminal justice system works, you have to have... You have to basically tick boxes and you have to have the money, the means, the capability, the access to firearms and be a danger to the police if you escape from custody. And the police said, I ticked five of those boxes. That's why my escape had to be made impossible. So I realised the gravity of what this actually meant when they transported me after going to the police station and being interviewed for three days to court, be, to be remanded into prison. Um, when I was in the sort of the reception area of the police station, um, the police that had arrested me were the ones escorting me to um, to court. And um, when they walked me out into the courtyard to get in the back of this police van, there was just armed police everywhere. There was Alsatian dogs. There was a helicopter above the police station. And I thought, wow, like, I'm in a lot of trouble. And they took me to court with all these blue lights. And then the judge reminded me and he said, your, your trial date's going to be on next date. And then they moved me to Belmarsh Prison. And then they, all these electronic doors, they click, 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 click. I walk through and then they, um, they let me out into this exercise yard and it 
was quite big considering how small the unit was. And then when I walked out to this exercise yard, I'm looking at these guys walking around in circles. And I'm like, there was, there was seven of them. And they all had like familiar faces. And I'm like, I recognize them. Um, and it was basically uh, the, the, the 21 seven attempted suicide bombers to try to blow up the tube network in London. And uh, Sheikh Abu Hamza, who was fighting extradition to the United States of America. Um, and there was another guy on there that was um, just convicted of a, of a contract murder serving life with a minimum tariff of 35 years. And then when I saw them, I thought, I am in a lot of trouble. Like, I have really the gravity of how much the system was going to do everything in their power for me to stay in there as long as I possibly humanly could. Wow. That's that's heavy stuff and terrifying. Um, wh- what happened next? I went up in front of a Crown Court judge and... When he started saying that, like, again, my links to criminal underworld were so extensive at such a young age that I already done a custodial sentence. And then he said, I believe that you're so entrenched in serious and organised crime from such a young age, the chances of you being rehabilitated are so remote, I believe that you will always be a danger to the public. And then when he said that, I knew he was going to absolutely hammer me. And, and, and he did. He, he, gave me, um, he gave me two life sentences. He gave me a life sentence for conspiracy to commit robbery and he gave me another life sentence for conspiracy to possess a firearm with the intent to commit robbery. And I remember when he sentenced me, like people often ask me how that feels to sort of get that sort of sentence when you're, when you're sort of a young person. And, and I had no intentions whatsoever to sit in that prison cell for that long. I, I thought, you can give me what you want, but I'm not going to sit in there. Like, it doesn't, it, it'd be irrelevant. The first opportunity I get to get out of this place, I'm taking it. And then I remember when, when I was walking back down to the cells, one of the prison officers said like that they was in a little bit of disbelief by how long I'd got for doing what, what I was convicted of. They just couldn't see how I got that sort of that sort of sentence for it. And anyway, I just I went back and and I thought, right, I'm not gonna be able to get out I'm not gonna be able to get out of this situation by escaping. Like they made that impossible. Like you had to concede that where I was and the situation and stuff. Um so I, I, I was, how can I get out of here as quick as I humanly can? And and to do that, I realised I had to sort of play the game this time. I couldn't, I couldn't sit in a segregation cell for years at an end. I couldn't not in, engage with them. And then they moved me to another high security unit up north in, in, in Leeds called Full Sutton. And I was just, I was just like, I was just ticking all the boxes. Like if they wanted me to do stuff, I, I would do it. Because um, I knew when I went on my parole hearing, as long as I'd done everything they wanted me to do, they'd had to have let me out. So there's already a, a bit of a change of character there. When when was it that the penny dropped and you realised that you were actually good at sport? The first time I realised I was sort of good as an athlete was when I was in Full Sutton, they would have a Christmas competition and it was called Superstars. And there was a prison officer called Mark Elliott and he was from Leeds, big burly guy. He was like ex um, uh, in the Royal Navy, uh, PTI in the Royal Navy, then got a job in the prison system. Maximum security prison, loads of like banter and chat, really funny, quite charismatic. He was tan. We used to like have a laugh and a joke with him. And over Christmas, he'd put these competitions on for all the prisoners. And anyway, I entered it. And and obviously, being in prison, you get a lot of like, <laughs> you get a lot of guys in there very macho, and, and and they like they've they've done it for years, and they've been in those maximum security prisons for like ten years and something, and they've never lost the competition. And I did this competition, 
And and I literally, when I say I walked away with it, like no one even got near me. And I remember Mark Elliott said like, that is unbelievable how quick you are. But I, I just didn't want to lose. It wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have any point of reference. I just didn't want to get beat. Like, I was competitive. Like I wanted to be the best of what I did. And then the next day, um, I entered the, the strongman competition because it got me off the wing. And I had no intention to be like, like in prison, the weights room is like how you see in a film. Like all these men, they've got loads of insecurities. They're in prison. All they want to do is get big. They're, they're pumping ridiculous weight just to get six packs and massive biceps and pecs. And like no one does legs. No one wants to train legs. It's all upper body. <laughs> I entered this competition. It was strongman and it was squats, bench press and deadlift. And in the whole prison, I was like the third strongest pound for pound man. And, and again, I didn't, I didn't know. I know this might sound ridiculous to people listening to this, but I didn't know what, and what an athlete was. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I generally I didn't register in my, my psychology at all. And, and again, the next year, same competition, won it again. Um, and then, and then after that, I got transferred out of that prison. I got moved to another lower security prison and my plan was working. I was working through the prison system. I was ticking all the boxes. And I thought, I'm going to be out of here. I'm going to be out of here in the next couple of years. So I'll get moved to a low security prison. I got, um, I was a wing cleaner at this point. I had access to mobile phones, which you're not allowed to have in prison. I was phoning up my friends that lived in Spain and Holland. And I said, look, guys, like, I'm going to be out of here in the next 18, two years time. Just make sure that when I'm out, everything's ready for me to go. Yeah, that that's interesting then because you're like getting fit, but you're not actually changing your mindset. Like you still have that criminal mindset. When when did that change? Was there like a moment of realization? So my my life changed forever on the the fourteenth of November two thousand and nine. Um, I woke up that morning. I did my circuit. I was looking forward that evening that the Republic of Ireland were playing France in a World Cup qualifier, and. And, and that was what I was looking forward to throughout that day. I would say to you today that from the, what I've told you up to this point, I was one of the most sort of one-track-minded, entrenched criminals you, 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 you would ever be able to come across and be exposed to. And that evening, the game of football started. At half-time, Ireland was still in the game. And I couldn't believe it because I thought that, it, um, that I thought the French would walk through them. And, and they didn't. And I phoned up my cousin at halftime and I said to him, are you watching the game? And my cousin said to me, like, are you on your own? And I said, yeah, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what? And he went on to tell me that my best friend that I grew up with since we were kids had, um, had died. And he, uh, he committed a, an armed robbery in the Netherlands, in Holland. And as he was getting away from the, from the offence, they, they weren't being chased by police, the people he was with. Um, the car tire blew out on a roundabout and the car flipped and my friend was thrown out the car and he broke his neck and died. Um, the other three guys were in the car, two of them died and the driver broke his back from um, the waist down. And I, and I was in disbelief. I was literally in disbelief. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I kept thinking, I kept thinking there was a mistake made. And then the following evening, um, news at 10, um, which is a big news channel in Britain, was because they were English criminals in another country and they had all obviously the, the, the amount of them that had died, it made News at 10, which like, is the flagship news channel. 
And I remember sitting in this prison cell in Loudon Grange in Nottingham. And I literally watched the last moments of my friend's life on a CCTV camera inside of this sort of like, um, it was like a supermarket where this cash machine was. And um, one of the guys run up, I say one of the guys, my friend, run up to the CCTV camera at a, at a tin of spray paint. And the camera froze just before the guy sprayed it over. And I could see my friend's eyes. I knew it was my friend for that balaclava. Like, I could tell by his eyes. And, and, it, and I can only, it's hard for me to express it into words, the impact that had on my life, like, it, the impact it had on my life. Um, it was like someone had switched on a light. And, and I remember looking around that prison cell and from that little boy that grew up eight years old, that wanted to own British Telecom, that wanted to achieve something in his life, that wanted to have a legacy, that wanted to leave a footprint on the earth, that was ambitious. I had spent up to that point, seven whole years of my life on earth, locked in a cage like a dog. Um, and I was losing on an unimaginable scale. And I realized it was like someone had switched on the tap of my life and the water was drain was literally going down into a drain hole and, and I wasn't doing anything. And I could relate to the fact that that should have been me that night. I should have been the one that been him and not me. It, we should have swapped places. Like I should have been the one that done something stupid like that and, and lost their life. Um, that shouldn't have been him. And I looked at my immortality and, 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 and the fact that he never achieved his aspirations in life and he never reached his potential in life. Like he never had children, never really traveled. He never done the things that he was physically capable of doing with his life. And, and I made the decision from that night, I would never again in my life ever commit a crime ever again. I, I, that was me done. Like I, I wanted to get out of this place and I wanted to do something else in my life. And, and I didn't know what it was. I, I honestly, I'll be honest, like I gave up my education. Um, I didn't know what it was. I genuinely didn't know what it was I was going to do. I just didn't want to do this anymore. I wanted to get out. And then the following morning, I went downstairs and we was in a communal eating area in the prison and there was other prisoners there and they were like talking about when they when they got out they were going to do this and that and they were going to stab this person and this person was a police informer and i just remember saying i can't be around these people no more i can't be around them like the only way i can explain it to someone it's like being it's like being a recovering drug addict locked in a crack den trying to get off drugs like I've changed. I knew I changed, but I was locked in this environment. I had, I could not escape. I was literally trapped with these people. So when did you start really taking it seriously? Because ultimately, is that when you started to have your first real success? Just to go back a bit, when, when you're in prison, obviously gym space is quite limited to the amount of inmates they've got in prison. So each wing is allocated a gym session on a certain day at a certain time. Yeah, you only get three gym sessions per week, per wing. And every time I went down this gym, there was this guy. He was a little bit overweight. He's from North London. His name is called Mickey Still. And he was down there all the time. He was literally on the rowing machine all the time. I went down there. And I went up to him. And I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm rowing, I'm rowing a million metres for a children's hospice in Nottingham. And he said, if you ask the prison officers and say you want to do it for charity, they give you a note and you can come down gym as much as you want to ch chip away at this million metres on a rowing machine. So I was 26, went to the prison officer, said to him, look, um, can, I, can I raise money for this children's hospice if I do what Mickey's doing? And, and the prison officer said, look, John, you go on the wing, you get sponsorship, you come back, give it to me. He went, you can have the note, you can come down, Jim, you can have it seven days a week, right? As much as you want it, because you're doing it for a good cause. And then I rode the first million metres in a month. 
and I've done it. I've done the millimetre challenge. Like, I, I wrote it for the charity. So I thought, oh God, I want to, can I, can I keep doing it? So I asked the prison officer again. He said, you can do it. Keep raising money. And I did. And then I wrote another million the third month. And then one day uh, a, a prisoner said to me, do you know that five million metres, because I rode to three million at this point. He said, five million is equivalent from rowing across the Atlantic. It's, it's, it's 5,000 K. Um, and I thought, actually, that's quite a cool thing to say I've done. Like, I've rode across the Atlantic on an indoor rowing machine. And, and the prison officer said, you can keep doing it. And, and I am an absolute passionate believer in life and destiny. And when I was going through that last two million metres, one day, um, an incredible human being called Darren Davis, who, is a, who was, or he still is, a prison officer, he walked behind me in the, in the gym and I just rode 10,000 metres this day and I rode it hard. And obviously, I noticed the numbers were coming down. I didn't have heart rate monitors in prison, but I noticed the rowing machine numbers were dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And that I could row the same distance faster and faster and faster. And he went to me, wow. He went, that is unbelievable. And I said, what? And he said, that is so fast. And again, I was in this little cocoon bubble of prison. I did not know what was good and what was bad. Like, I, I've never been around rowers. I didn't know what a good time was, what a bad time was. I didn't know anything about power to weight. I, I'd no, I had no sort of idea anything about that sort of element of sport. And then a few days later, he come back to me and he gave me all these pieces of paper and they had all these world and British indoor rowing records on them. And, and I remember looking at them and at that moment, I could already break three of them and I was like no they, they can't be real and and they and he said they are and he planted a seed in my head and and I remember I went back to my cell and I was looking at these pieces of paper and I I, 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 I went back to him and I said look could, could I try to break some of these and he went to the prison governor and he, his name was called Gareth Sands and he was a deeply religious man Christian and Darren I wasn't obviously privy to this conversation but Darren said to me later on even I absolutely believe that this could be the catalyst for this man turning his life around. And I think if we allow him to do this, because bear in mind, I'm in prison. This has never been done and ever, ever, even since I've been out, I've never heard of a, like anything even similar to what occurred here. And Gareth Sand said, yeah, he can do it. And the first record I tried to break was for the marathon. So Darren had to weigh me. He had to take photographs. Uh, um, he had to be able to prove to the people that officiate the records that he explained the situation. He said, this guy's in prison. We're prison officers. So they said, OK, that we class that as an independent relationship. Like, there's no there's no chance you're going to lie for an inmate. We get that. But there had to be two or three separate prison officers to sign it, the statement to say he had done it at this weight class because I was doing it as a lightweight man. And I broke the record. I, I went for it and I, and I broke the British record for the marathon um, on indoor round machine by seven minutes. Um, I end up, uh, whilst I was in prison, so within, it was like a 16-month um, sort of window, I broke eight British records and three world records. That's impressive. Like, how, how did you feel then after, after getting those records? I, I can't express to you in words how that made me feel when I finished that record. Like, this is, again, what I've learned in my life, why, how I know what sport can do for people's lives. Because when I broke that record that day, everything I'd ever wanted as a child, I felt like that doing that record. 
They're not wanting to be average, to have success, to achieve something for a legacy. My footprint on the earth. Like I realised, I I I become intoxicated with with that through money, and I thought the only way I could ever feel like that was just through having lots of money. And then that day when I'd done that on that rowing machine, I realised I could use my body as a way to make me feel like that and and to give me that accomplishment and do something positive. And it just made me feel honestly, I felt incredible. And and it and I was right, right. I am going to use my body as a vehicle to get me out of this place. I am going to use my body as this is what my life's going to be about. And this is how I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve in my life. And I went down the prison library and then I started reading about sports nutrition because I didn't know what a protein was, what a carbohydrate was, electrolytes, energy gels, like glycogen. <laughs> I just used to read these books and just study them. And then what, what again, like, what really opened up my eyes was Darren started bringing me in books of all these like um, cyclists in the Tour de France, um, Olympic rowers. When I was reading these stories about these men, um, that all the characteristics that I had, the, the, the drive and, and the passion and, and the want to be good at something, I had never been exposed to this group of individuals before that had these characteristics other than criminals. So then I'm reading these books and then what I realised at that moment that things that were destroying my life become massive attributes when I applied them into sport and would allow me to be successful because the similarities in between me and a lot of these other people were, were stark. Like I was reading these things and honestly, I, I know it might sound bizarre to people that have been around sport their whole lives, but when you've come into it at 26, 27 years old and you've had no interest in these individuals, I, I didn't watch the Olympic, I, I had no interest in it at all in sport really. And then suddenly you're reading all these, these books and, you read these magazines about these individuals and you're like, you can relate to them. And you're like, actually, you're very, you're like me. So then I saw then, it convinced me that that was the path. If I travelled down this path, I'd, I'd be successful at it. So clearly you aren't in jail now, but how, how did that happen? How did you get out? So I served eight, eight full years incarcerated before I got out because of all the mistakes they made in my paperwork. Um, I, I then got released in the October of 2012 I literally got released on a Friday and on a Saturday morning I went down to a rowing club just up the road well around the corner from where I am now called um, London Rowing Club and there was a there was an Australian coach there and he coached the women's Australian quad and he was like I remember I met him for the first time and he was like I, like, I uh I don't want to be insulting but he was, he was very he was very blunt yeah, he, he, he was like, what, what can you row 2,000 metres in on a ram machine? And I said, like, six minutes and 18 seconds. And he was like, how much do you weigh? And I said, 72 kilos. And he went, that is really quick. <laughs> and he went, do you know what? We give you a chance. And, and he let me join. And, and I, I mean, honestly, I put everything I had into it. I used to do, like, two water sessions a day. I paid for private coaching. Um, I did, honestly, I did everything. But I'm a realist. And rowing... I was at that point nearly 30 years old. And you know what, physiology-wise, like I used to do sessions with, with guys that trained, went to the Olympics London 2012. And physiology-wise, like on the round machine, I could live with them. I was stronger than them in the gym. But on the round machine, I was putting out similar sort of numbers. They were a little bit better than me, but I kind of thought, well, you've been an Olympic rower. like. But I, I just, I took up the sport too late. I, I literally took it up too late. Like, I did, literally missed the boat. Like I was, I was too old to get to that level. It, it was the technical finesse, like, you can't, it, it's just, you can't master it from the fact of using power and strength. That 
must have been tough mentally, right? My goal always was to be an athlete and be the best athlete I could be. And I realised I couldn't get to that level in rowing. So when I was in prison, I, I watched a, a, a programme on um, one of our TV channels and there was a sport on there called Ironman. And I remember watching these athletes racing in Kona in Hawaii, which was the world champs. And they were like getting off a 112 mile bike, right, running like a, a 235 marathon. I was like, how is that even humanly possible? Um, and I thought that's what popped back into my head. I thought Ironman. And I went on Google and I, <laughs> I Googled like training programs. And I looked at like how, what the criteria is to be professional. I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. So I went and bought a bike off eBay, which was too big. And, and I taught myself to swim in the, in the Lido in Hyde Park. Um, when I made the decision to race my first ever Ironman, I had to do it for a charity place because I had missed the entries, to, like general entries. They, all, they had all closed. So I couldn't leave the United Kingdom because I was on like travel restriction from probation. So the only Ironman race I could do anywhere realistically within Britain was Ironman UK, which was up north in Bolton. So I had to rent it for a charity place. And I literally had like six weeks <laughs> to get fit to do it. I was very rowing fit. So I was very rowing like fit on the rowing machine. So I had basically that six, six, seven weeks to, to, to teach myself to swim to a, to a degree. Um, the furthest I'd ever ridden like, was the day of the first race I ever done. And, I, and again, I'm not going to say it arrogantly, but when I did it, it didn't feel that hard. Like I remember I finished it and it was, it was amazing. The feeling was incredible. Like, when I run down that red carpet in Bolton Town Centre, I was like, wow. Like, I was, I, I'm not really an emotional person, but I remember like watching that TV programme in prison and then running down that red carpet. Like, well, this is, it was incredible. Like, mate, the way it made me feel, like, it was like I achieved something out of prison. Like, all the rowing stuff was amazing, but then actually seeing something in prison and coming out and actually saying, well, one day I'd love to do an Ironman, and then suddenly doing the Ironman, um, was incredible and then it become again it was quite addictive like I just went to get better at it then and I thought right this is what I'm going to do now and I and I pursued I've pursued that goal um, of trying to constantly improve for the last sort of five years now. That's an incredible life story basically with all these extremes and highs and lows and I guess what I want to ask is without sport where do you think you would be? Dead. If, if, I, if I never stumbled across uh, this, I've, my eyes would never have been open to it. I, I just think that, um, yeah, I think I'd have ended up dead. I do. I do. I think I would have done something and, and I would have been my mate. I would have ended up dead. I would have ended up six feet under. Or, 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 or like I've said before, like dying by default by wasting my whole life in prison. I think that's what my destiny, that was where my life would have ended up taking me. Without sport, I wouldn't be the person I am today. Like, it literally did save my life. It literally did save my life. And that's what makes me so passionate about giving that gift back to other people for them to also have the benefits of it. So you're training as an athlete. You're, you're competing in these events, these Ironman events. You've set all these British records. But it kind of sounds like that's not your sole focus so what is your biggest priority now then let, let me put it like I'll, I'll put it to you like this if if you gave me the option between winning an Ironman or um, winning a gold medal at Olympics 
or sacrificing my whole athletic career to stop one kid going to prison, I would sacrifice everything. It wouldn't even be a conscious call. It, it, I would make that decision like that. It doesn't like like that. Like, and that that's where my life's at now. My, that's where my life's been shaped by the experiences of the people I've interacted with the last sort of five and a half years since I've been out of prison, and and the impact that I know you can make to people's lives. And and actually, I think that to me would be a far greater legacy. Um, that when I'm an old man one day, he comes up to me and says, "You was that man that came into my school that meant that I didn't go to prison." All right, John. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your story. It's uh, certainly a powerful one and all the very best for your future. Thank you so much and take care. Olympic Olympic Channel Channel Podcast. Big thanks to John. You can follow him on Instagram on johnnymac83. That's J-O-N-N-Y. M-A-C-83 in numbers. He should be competing actually very soon, so stay across his socials to see how he gets on in his Ironmans. If you want to follow me, I'm at Eddie Knowles with an I and E across all socials too. If you found John's story inspirational, then let's get some positive vibes flowing throughout the world. Get an Instagram story up. Give us a tag on at Olympic Channel. It would be great if we spread this message around to people, I think, anyway. If you liked this episode, then maybe you would like our episode with swimmer Anthony Irvin. Now, he won gold, Olympic gold, aged 19. His life then fell apart. He was homeless and he also attempted to take his own life, all whilst drinking heavily. In 2016, he won the 50 metres freestyle again. Age 35, he became the oldest individual Olympic gold medalist in swimming. But he doesn't always think that winning is the best thing that can happen to a person. Winning can be a terrible thing that happens to you. It can completely intoxicate you and derail you and you may distort your values and principles because of what winning may open up to you. I really, really, really love that episode. If you are loving the podcast in general, then give us a five-star review on the podcast app. Maybe stick in like your favourite episode or your most motivational quote that you found from the podcast in there. That would be great. That's it for now, though. See you soon. Think Think like an Olympian. Olympian.